So last week we looked at the healing of the man by the pool. And we saw the response of the Jews, which is just, as I said last week, John's way of speaking about the religious leaders who opposed Jesus and all of those who were influenced by those religious leaders, basically everyone who was hostile to Jesus, John calls the Jews. John knows full well that Jesus is a Jew. John knows full well that the disciples are Jews. It's not anti-Semitic as some have charged and so on and so forth. This is just his way of saying the Jews, um, of saying the, the hostile religious crowd. So we saw the response last week of the Jews to the man who had been healed. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So this guy has been crippled for longer than I've been alive. And one day he picks up his mat, and these guys apparently can't see the forest for the trees because their response is, you shouldn't be carrying your mat. That's the response of these guys. They accuse this man of Sabbath breaking. As we saw last week, he passes the buck and says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your mat. And then they say, who is it? He says, I don't know. But it's as if his attitude is, but I'll get back to you as soon as I find out. Because he goes and Jesus tells him his name. And the guy goes straight back to the Jews who were hostile toward Jesus and says it was Jesus. So basically... He's, he's like a snitch who's willing, to, who's willing to provide names if it will get him off the hook. And so this is what he does. He goes back to the Jews and gives a name so that he himself won't be in too much trouble and hopefully it will all come down on Jesus instead of him. I told you last week that we would deal with this allegation that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker this week. And we will in brief, in passing. It's actually not the main thrust of this passage. Jesus starts there, but then Jesus goes on to say many more things. And so what we're going to see today is five things about Jesus' work. Five things about the work of Jesus, which speak to Jesus' identity, which speak to his role in salvation, and which speak to his relation to the Father. So let's look at the first thing, which is that Jesus work of healing this man on the Sabbath is legitimate. Jesus' work of healing this man on the Sabbath is legitimate. A biblical doctrine of the Sabbath recognizes that not all work is prohibited on the Sabbath. Worship is commanded, and worship is work. But there's that joke that pastors only work one hour a week. I can attest to you, it's not entirely true, but even those who are the sharpest critics of pastors and who have the least elevated role of their work at least understand that they are at least working for one hour a week. In other words, I'm working right now, though it's the Sabbath. Jesus teaches that the priests who work in the temple in his day profane the Sabbath, he says, and yet are guiltless. In other words, they're not actually breaking the Sabbath. They're not actually profaning the Sabbath. Worship is commanded, and worship is work. You know it's work. You know it full well when you wake up in the morning and you try to get your kids ready, and they're complaining and disobeying and running around, and you're trying to round everybody up and get out of the house on time. And You know full well it's work. 
you know full well it's work when you have to set an alarm from your Sunday afternoon nap to get back here for Sunday night. You know full well that it's work when you're tired, but you have to rouse yourself and come. You know full well it's work when your mind is starting to wander and you have to discipline yourself to focus the same way you do at your desk Monday to Friday while you fulfill your vocation. You know, and I know full well, that worship is work. But worship, the work of worship, is actually commanded on the Sabbath. And then works of necessity and mercy are permitted. Jesus teaches if an ox falls in the pit, aren't you going to just pick it up and take it out? And of course, if you would even show mercy to an animal, how much more should you show mercy to another human being? If you showed up to church late because you were helping somebody whose car had broken down at the side of the road or somebody that you saw was injured or whatever, that would be very legitimate works of mercy are permitted. So are works of necessity. Strictly speaking, you could say cooking is work. You could say that showering, bathing is work. And yet, these are things that we don't just stop on Saturday and resume on Monday, but these are things we do on Sunday as well. And so, a biblical doctrine of the Sabbath recognizes that not all work is prohibited on the Sabbath. Worship is commanded, and works of necessity and mercy are permitted. But Jesus' defense doesn't get into all that. That's just by way of review and by way of summary for those who may not be familiar with what the Scripture teaches and might be wondering, is the critique of the Pharisees legitimate? Jesus' defense doesn't get into all that, though. Jesus doesn't articulate a full-blown doctrine of the Sabbath here in this passage. Instead, he simply asserts that his Father, that is God the Father, works on the Sabbath. And if God works on the Sabbath, then therefore the Sabbath must be aimed at more than mere inactivity. It's really quite quite simple, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, we read that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Exodus chapter 20 teaches us explicitly that this is the institution of the Sabbath. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. Whatever else this verse might be teaching us, the logic of it is that the Sabbath was given to man in order that we might imitate God. Correct? That's indisputable from this passage. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy implicitly for man. Because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Genesis 2 and verse 3, whatever else it might be teaching us, teaches us at least that on the Sabbath man is to imitate God who rested. Jesus' argument is that God rested in a certain sense, but in a certain sense he's always working. And so in a certain sense, it's legitimate and appropriate for people to be always working. It's not just mere inactivity that is the goal of the Sabbath. And this was one of the distortions and the perversions of the Jews. They had all these rules about what they could and couldn't do, exactly how many steps you could walk, 
exactly what you were able to do, what you weren't, what you were allowed to pick up, what you weren't allowed to pick up, so on and so forth. Over the years, all kinds of ludicrous rules have emerged uh, within the Jewish community about what is permissible and what's not. Things like carrying a shoe with you so that if you reach your maximum limit of steps, you could throw it, and then, well, you have to go retrieve it. So I guess you've got to cross over your initial boundary. Even to this day in Toronto, there's a Jewish hospital which has an elevator that stops on every floor so that no one has to do the work of pressing the buttons. Never mind that you probably expended more calories walking into the elevator than pressing a mere button would ever do. But you see that if the goal is mere inactivity, if the understanding of the Sabbath is basically we should do nothing, then you'd be incensed, of course, if a man takes up his mat and walks, flagrantly defying that which you think God's law is. And so Jesus defends his own work of healing this man on the Sabbath as legitimate, not on the grounds that it's merciful, which he does elsewhere, not on the grounds that it's necessary or that the man's taking up his mat and walking is necessary. He doesn't get into an argument with them about that. He just simply says, well, there's a sense in which God is still working. And so basically don't worry about my activity and my lack of inactivity. So Jesus' work of healing this man on the Sabbath is legitimate. And that's the reason that Jesus provides. So let's move on from the Sabbath issue and continue with four other things about Jesus' work that we see in this passage, which speak, as I said at the beginning of the message, to Jesus' identity, to Jesus' role in salvation, and to Jesus' relation to the Father. The first thing that I mentioned was that Jesus' work of healing this man on the Sabbath was legitimate. The second thing is that Jesus' work is God's work. God's work is Jesus' work. We can't miss what even the Jews saw. Jesus was in this passage making himself equal with God, as verse 18 says. Many have noted before me that the Jehovah's Witnesses and other Arians should go back and check their theology because even the opponents of Jesus could clearly see what it was that Jesus was claiming about himself. And Jesus never goes, whoa, you misunderstood me. You see, Jesus always just leaves it hanging out there. He never retracts it. He never walks it back the way that you would expect a good man to do, the way that you would expect a prophet to do. I won't call names, but there was a child in one of the churches that I pastored who his parents were asking him in family worship about God and who is God. And he, and he said, Pastor John. <laughs> Obviously, I would be quick to correct that misunderstanding. Obviously, his parents understood that that's not correct. But in his mind, you go to church to worship, and it's something to do with God, and he sees me at the front and puts two and two together. <laughs> you, see, you see, a good man, any good man, would be very quick to try to correct that kind of misunderstanding. Anyone who is actually a servant of God would be very quick to try to correct that kind of misunderstanding. But when the Jews 
want to kill Jesus because he's making himself equal with God, Jesus doesn't say, whoa, hang on a second, let me clarify. Jesus just leaves it hanging out there. Jesus, what he does in this passage is he says, first of all, Jesus is my father. And this is in a unique way. Obviously, I could say in a sense, Jesus is my father. Any Christian could. But there is a unique way in which Jesus seems to be emphasizing his sonship here. And I don't think any of us would dispute that Jesus is God's son in a unique way. In that old language, he's the only begotten son. He bears his DNA in a way that the adopted sons, whom that only begotten son has brought to glory, do not and could not. Jesus is not merely of like substance to the Father, as that old council decided long, long ago, but Jesus is of one substance with the Father. So Jesus calls him my Father, making him self-equal with God, but then Jesus goes on to say, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is verse 19. We might think that this is a mere statement of imitation. The Son does what he sees his Father doing. Me and one of my sons went out to see some stuff we're building in our backyard. And my son said, looks good, man. (laughs) Which makes me think he didn't invent that phrase. (laughs) He probably heard me say that to one of the workers. And so he imitated. We all understand that sons do what they see their fathers doing. But Jesus is not making a mere statement of imitation here, that he imitates what he sees the Father doing. J.C. Ryle makes the point that when Jesus says, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise, he's not merely saying that he does similar things, or that he does work that also accomplishes God's purposes. But the very work that the Father does, the Son is doing. In other words, when the Father does something, the Son is doing that. What the Father does, not those sorts of things the Son does likewise. What the Father does, that the Son does likewise. When the Father acts, the Son is acting. You see, there's a sense in which I'm doing God's work right now. We talk about how we as Christians do the work of the Lord. But we don't claim that when God acts, we are acting. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that whatever the Father does, that the Son is likewise doing. That the Son likewise does. This touches on the doctrine of simplicity, which you may or may not have heard before. The doctrine of simplicity is the doctrine that God is without parts. The Trinity is three persons, but not three parts. The way that one group of three humans could be said to be in one sense one, and in another sense three. 
but that one group of humans would be comprised of three parts. So let's just take the names of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, just as a convenient illustration. It's a group of three, one group of three persons, but what Peter does is not implicitly what John does, or what James does, or what James does is not implicitly what Peter does, or what John does. Because one part may be divided from, separated from the others. Not merely distinguished, but actually separated from. And so James may actually act independently of Peter and John and so on and so forth. With God, it is not so. Simplicity means that God cannot be divided. God cannot be separated within himself. You can't, you can't break God apart to see what constitutes him. The way that you can take a cake and find sugar and milk and flour or whatever else goes into cake. You can't look at what are the parts that constitute God. You can't say, well, when you, when you have omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence and all this stuff and you mix it all together, then you have God. Nor can you say, when you have a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit, then you have God. God simply is what He is or who He is. And think when He appeared to Moses in the bush, what did He say? I am who I am. We have no other analogy in creation because there is nothing like God. There is no one like God. We bear maybe some measure of resemblance, but there is nothing that we can say, oh, yeah, how that works, that's how God works. Because there's nothing like God in that sense. Nothing else is truly simple. Everything else is composed of parts. Even the most indivisible piece of matter is a subset or a part of a larger group. So a quick Google search, you could correct me if you're a scientist. I'm not. But the most indivisible piece of matter, as far as I could tell, is a quark. But a quark, though it may not be able to be divided further, is one among many quarks. And so quarkness, if we might call it that, is not simple. Quarkness is comprised of many quarks. Whatever, all these quarks together make quarks or quarkness or whatever. I'm not sure if I'm explaining exactly exactly right. As you can understand, this is deep stuff, but I think you can understand that we don't say, okay, God is like a quark then. Are you tracking with me? God is unlike any other. Divinity is unlike any other. There's no proper analogy for God in this world. God is simple, unlike anything else. Yet though, so, let me summarize that section. So Jesus' work is God's work. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That the Son does likewise. So, 
If God creates, the Father creates, the Son creates, the Spirit creates. If God saves, the Father saves, the Son saves, the Spirit saves. What the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus is making an astonishing claim here. He's doubling down on what he said. He's not walking it back. Remember, they think that he's making himself equal with God. And he's not walking it back or retracting it. He's doubling down on it and saying, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus' work is God's work. And yet, though God's actions are always technically triune, they're often said to be the works of one particular person of the Godhead. And therefore, Jesus' work is the Son of God's work. Let's look at Ephesians 1 to demonstrate this principle. It's a familiar passage, I think, to most of us. And I'm not, I'm not really expositing it here in this section, just using it as an illustration of how actions are denominated to one person of the Godhead. Ephesians 1, listen, beginning at verse 3, and I'm going to just insert my annotations as I read through. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So who, who is said to have blessed us with every spiritual blessing? The Father. Even as He chose us, who chose us? The Father. In Him before the foundation of the world that we should be blameless before Him. In love He predestined us. Who predestined us? The Father. For adoption as sons to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7. In Him. In who? The Beloved. In the Beloved, that is the Son. We have forgiveness, pardon me, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses so on and so forth. And then verse 11, in him that is still the beloved, the son, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So who seals us? Right. Well, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Right? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Who's the guarantee of our inheritance? The Spirit. So all we see in this passage is that though when, when any one person of the Godhead acts, the whole Godhead acts, what we also see is that it's not wrong to ascribe a particular work to one person of the Trinity in Particular. And so, back in John chapter 5, we see that there are things which are said to be the Son's work and not the Father's work. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Uh, Oh, sorry, I wrote down the wrong verse here. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And so we see there that judgment is not said to be a work of the Father, but a work of the Son, verse 22. And then in verse, 
Well, actually, that's the only one that is particularly said to be the son's work in this section. But this is another instance of denominating one person in the Trinity as the actor, as Ephesians 1 does. And this is fine. Obviously, the Bible does it. So long as we understand that the Trinity, that so long as we don't begin to conceive of the Trinity as three persons, like Peter, James, and John, in that sense. The Trinity is three persons in a different sense. Not in that sense. There is simplicity in the Godhead. So simplicity informs, but does not negate triunity. It helps us understand what we mean when we talk about threeness and what we can't mean when we talk about threeness. But obviously it doesn't negate the concept of threeness because we see threeness all over scripture. So there are distinctions to be made, though division is impossible. Again, this is very hard for us to grasp because there is no analogy. But let me paraphrase something that R.C. Sproul said. He talks about the importance in recognizing what word we're using. We might think of separation and distinction as being basically synonymous, but they're not synonymous at all. And he uses this illustration to explain that concept. We are comprised of body and soul. If I distinguish between your body and your soul, then I'm able to talk meaningfully about what your body is and different parts of your body and so on and so forth. We can recognize that our doctors, our physicians care for our bodies. That doesn't mean we have no souls. It just means that that's not their primary purview. Primarily, we take care of our souls at church, so on and so forth. Thinking, distinguishing between our bodies and our souls can be helpful in many ways. But Sproul says, if we separate, if I separate your body from your soul, I've killed you. Because they belong together. And so we can distinguish between things without separating things. And this is the point with simplicity and triunity. Is that we may distinguish, we may make distinctions within the Godhead. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. But we may not separate. We may not conceive of triunity in a way that makes these three constituent parts of God. So that when you mix all the ingredients together like you mix up a cake, then you have God. This is what we may not do. And so we see in this passage that Jesus' work is God's work. He claims a distinct relationship to his father, such that actually whatever the father's doing, that very thing is also his action. Jesus' work is God's work. And yet we see also that there is Jesus' work in this passage, which is called the son of God's work. The father himself judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So we see that Jesus' work of healing on the Sabbath is legitimate. That's the first thing. Second thing is we see Jesus' work is God's work. The third thing we see is that Jesus' work is the Son of God's work. The fourth thing that we see is that Jesus' work involves not only healing, but also resurrection and judgment. Jesus has just healed the man who was crippled for 38 years. That's the context of this passage. That's the 
setting in which this whole conversation happens. So when Jesus says in verse 20, greater works than these will he show him so that you also may marvel. He means greater works than healing will the Father show him. Now, before we get on to this work of resurrection and judgment, let's just continue to speak a little bit about the interpersonal relationships of the Trinity. This passage speaks of the Father showing and giving and granting certain work to the Son. Verses 20, 22, and 26. This does not mean that the Son is inferior or created or derived or anything like that. The meaning of this is twofold. One is there is a begetting by the Father and a begottenness of the Son that Scripture talks about, which involves the language of giving and receiving. So we understand that to be an eternal act. It's not, there was not a time when the Son wasn't, and then the Father begat Him and the Son was. So when we say the only begotten Son, we don't mean He was born like 8 trillion years ago. We're talking about an eternally begotten Son. And yet, the way that the Scripture talks about that relationship sometimes has the language of giving and receiving. Then, there is, secondly, the mediatorial work of Christ, the God-man, in which the God-man has work given him by the Godhead. And as our confession says, because of the unity of his person, he is God and man together, inseparably, without, as, the, as our confession says, without conversion, composition, or confusion. It doesn't mean that God changed into a man. That's conversion. It doesn't mean that God plus man makes a constituent third being. That's what uh, composition means. And, and confusion simply means that just like when you mix blue and yellow together, you get a whole new color. It doesn't mean that when you mix God and man together, you get a whole new thing. And so there is an inseparable unity of Christ, the God-man. And this man has received work from the Godhead to do. The Lord said to my Lord, Jesus said, I, I covenant to you that kingdom which has been covenanted to me by my Father. These sorts of things. And so, as our confession says, because of the unity of his person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other. So what we see in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 is that it says, care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so we can't say that God died, truly and properly speaking, though sometimes we speak that way, right? We're speaking in a non-technical sense, and this is what Paul's doing in Acts chapter 20. And so, that which is proper to Christ's human nature is in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, attributed to the person denominated by the other. 
Likewise, that is going on here in this passage a little bit as well. And so let me explain as I go a little bit further. Showing in verse 20 doesn't mean revealing. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. This doesn't mean that the father reveals things to the son. We know that because in verse 20, Jesus says, and greater works than these will he show him. Not greater works than these has he showed him, but greater works than these will he show him. And he goes on to speak about these greater works being resurrection and judgment, which are future things. And so Jesus already has knowledge of these things. And if Jesus already has knowledge of these things, then that means that the showing can be revealing. And so what it seems to be is more language of relational intimacy. Like we may say that uh, someone is an, is an open book. It means that they're, they're transparent. They're hiding nothing. There are no secrets. There's no arm's length distance, whatever. If, you, if, if a wife said, my husband is an open book to me, or a husband said, my wife is an open book to me, it means that you know everything about that person or that there's no, there's no distance whatsoever in that relationship. This seems to be the way that Christ is talking about showing. Remember in the beginning of John's Gospel, it says the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word was with God. Some commentators say that that word could actually be translated appropriately as toward. The Word was toward God and the Word was God. In other words, there's, a, there's a, almost a spatial orientation of the Word toward God. Even as the Word is with God. Uh, pardon me, even as the Word is God. And so, if it were translated that way, that would not undermine the deity of the Word any more than saying the Word was with God undermines the deity of the Word. But if it were translated that way, it would speak to, again, an orientation of intimacy, an orientation of love and, and togetherness. The Word was toward God, and the Word was God. That seems to be something like the idea that's being conveyed here when it says that the Father shows me all that He's doing. And whatsoever He's doing, I'm also doing. That seems to be what's going on in this passage. Then in verse 22, when it says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son, this seems to be speaking of the mediatorial role of the Christ. That it's God's... the. It's God's prerogative, the Godhead's prerogative to judge sinful man, isn't it? And yet we see that God has given all judgment to the Son. It seems to be here that what is meant is the Christ, the mediator. It is, God, it is the Godhead's prerogative to judge sinful man, but the Godhead has entrusted to the Son of God, made flesh for us and for our salvation, who was crucified, who has risen, who has ascended, who is at the Father's right hand, who will return again to judge the living and the dead, the Godhead has entrusted to that person the work of judgment. It's a function of his mediatorial role to be the judge 
of the living and the dead. That seems to be the sense here. And then in verse 26, where it says that the Father has granted the Son, as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. This seems to have to do with begottenness. In other words, how could God not have life in Himself? So if the Father who begets has light in Himself, pardon me, has life in Himself, how could the Son who is begotten not have life in Himself? But this seems to be an instance where a language of receiving is used in conjunction with the concept of begottenness. And so as the only begotten of the Father, the Son is of one substance with the Father, and therefore... As the Father has life in Himself, so by virtue of His begottenness from the Father, He also has life in Himself. And so, none of these things, this showing, this giving of judgment, of the work of judgment from the Father to the Son, this granting Him to have life in Himself, none of these things speak to any inferiority or createdness or anything like that on the part of the Son. These are just ways of speaking of either the relationships between the Godhead and the Christ or the relationships between the Father as the begetter and the Son as the begotten. That's all that's going on in this section. Jesus is just speaking of these deep and wondrous things. Ryle admits in his commentary on John that we often say we want to know God more. We want more light. We want more knowledge. But every now and then, and in John's gospel, Jesus does it a few times. He starts talking about inter-Trinitarian relationships. Um, He starts talking about his relationship to the Father. He starts talking about the eternal kingdom and his identity as the Christ and what the Father's given him and so on and so forth. And our minds are blown very quickly. And so, Ryle recognizes what many have recognized before, that there is a sense in which God uses accommodated language in the scripture to speak about himself and to reveal himself unto us. As Calvin said, God lisps and babbles as a nurse might talk to a little baby whom she's taking care of. There's a condescension of God in his speaking with us, to try to help us understand something of who he is, something of of the relationships between the Father, the Son, the Spirit, something of the mechanics of salvation and so on and so forth. All of these things which really we, we will never be able to completely comprehend, never be able to completely wrap our minds around as our minds are like a five-gallon bucket, which can't hold more than five gallons, it has a finite capacity. So our minds have a finite capacity and can't hold more than whatever their capacity is. Therefore, when we begin to talk about an infinite God and eternal things, there's only so much we can grasp. And yet a five-gallon bucket might not be able to take up the whole Atlantic Ocean within it, but it can truly and properly take up part of the Atlantic Ocean in it. 
so we might be able to truly and properly grasp something about God, something about the relations of the persons within the Trinity to one another, something about eternity and infinity and simplicity and so on and so forth. And so we do our best when we come to these sections of Scripture. So let's review briefly here before we come in to land the plane from these ethereal heights to a little bit more practical stuff. Jesus' work of healing the man on the Sabbath was legitimate. Jesus' work is God's work. Whatever the Father's doing, that very thing, the Son is also doing. Jesus' work is the Son's work. There are things which are particularly attributed in the Scripture to Jesus as being His work. And fourthly, and we're still here, fourthly, Jesus' work involves not only healing, but also resurrection and judgment. You see here, it's very clear here, whatever the intrapersonal relations between the Father and the Son, it's very clear here, it's Jesus' job to raise the dead and judge them. Am I right? Verses 16 to verse 29, you can't read it and come away with an impression other than that. Jesus has been given the job of raising the dead and judging them. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That is the mediator. Those who have done good, verse 29, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the dead are going to be brought to life and Jesus is going to judge them. And who's going to bring them to life? The father, as the father raises the dead and gives them life, verse 21, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And then down in verse 25, the hour is coming, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Here there is some resurrection attributed to the father, but the emphasis here is on the son's resurrecting power and resurrecting authority, and then authority to judge those whom are resurrected. And some, it says, will go to a resurrection of life, and some, it says, will go to a resurrection of judgment. What that means is everyone's going to be resurrected. So, Jesus' work of healing the man is legitimate. Jesus' work is God's work. Jesus' work is the Son of God's work. And Jesus' work involves not only healing, but resurrection and judgment. Very clear, right? This means that Jesus' work is central to salvation. That's a pretty obvious takeaway, isn't it? And that's our fifth thing about Jesus' work. Jesus' work is central to salvation. You want to be raised from the dead? You're going to need to deal with Jesus. You want to be raised not to a resurrection of judgment, but to a resurrection of life? You're going to need to deal with Jesus. And that's exactly what is stated in verse 23. It is God's purpose that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. 
in religious matters as pertaining to your relationship with God, as pertaining to your resurrection, as pertaining to the eternal fate of your body and soul, you need to deal with Jesus. You can't bypass Jesus and go to God. We've seen that the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of the Trinity, as simplicity and triunity, precludes that. How are you going to deal with the God who is one with the Son without dealing with the Son? You understand, when you're dealing with Jesus, you're dealing with God. And if you want to deal with God, you have to deal with Jesus. You can deal with Peter without dealing with James and John. You can deal with James without dealing with Peter and John. But you can't deal with God without dealing with Jesus. And you can't deal with Jesus without dealing with God. Which means when you criticize Jesus for being a Sabbath breaker, you're criticizing God for being a Sabbath breaker. Which means when you reject Jesus, He came unto His own, but His own received Him not, you're rejecting God. The Word who was with God, the Word who was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see that there's some deep stuff here in this passage about the Trinity and the relationship with the Father and the Son and so on and so forth. This, what this should do at the ground level, it's very hard to understand up here, I get that. But what this should at least do on the ground level is help us understand that you can't deal with God without dealing with Jesus. And you can't deal with Jesus without dealing with God. The Jews are absolutely right here. Jesus is making an inseparable connection between himself and the Father. He's not merely saying that he's one of God's people, that God is his Father in the way that any Jew in those days or any Christian today could say, I've been adopted by God and I'm his son. Jesus was making very distinct claims to divinity. He's making distinct claims about the nature of his relationship to the Godhead. They understood that much. And we must at least understand that much as well. You don't get God without Jesus. And this is so important in our day and age. Where so many hold to what I call a generic Godism. People will be like, yeah, I believe in God. I definitely believe in God. For sure. You know, I, get, I wake up, I give thanks to God. You know, and you're like, what do you think of Jesus? They're like, I don't know. Yeah, the Bible, I mean, he was a good man. You understand? You don't get God without Jesus. The Jew, it's not like the Jews have God, but they don't have Jesus. It's not like the Muslims have God, but they don't have Jesus. You understand? You can't, you can't have genuine monotheism 
without Jesus. There's no such thing as people who have God but don't have Jesus. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Because as the Father's work or the Son's work is are the Son's works, so the Son's work is also the Father's work. You understand when Jesus is doing things, God is doing things. We need to understand this point and we need to press this point with our theistic friends and neighbors. We need to understand this point in our own souls. Jesus is not like icing on the cake or something. Jesus is not supplemental to our faith in God. Jesus says elsewhere, and we'll come to all these things in due time, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is very clear in this passage, as well as in other passages, that there is no separating. There is distinguishing between himself and the Father, but there is no separating himself and the Father. Conversely, Jesus doesn't operate in a vacuum, but in relation to his Father. If the first is important for understanding God, that you don't get God without Jesus, what I just stated is essential for understanding the gospel. You don't get Jesus without the Father. Everything that Jesus has done and is doing is done in conjunction with the Father. Marcion was a heretic who separated the Old Testament from the New Testament drastically. The God of the Old Testament was different than the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. What Jesus is teaching us in this passage undermines that completely. Because whatever the Father is doing, that very thing Jesus is doing. So whatever the Father was doing in the Old Testament, which Marcion found so repugnant, Jesus was doing. The Son was doing. Whatever Jesus is doing in the New Testament that Marcion found so wonderful, the Father is doing. John Owen is excellent. If you ever, it's, it's very tough reading. But if you ever have a chance to read Communion with God, there's an abridged, updated version in our lending library, which is at my house. You can borrow it if you like. If you ever have a chance to read John Owen on our relationship as Christians with the Father. It's wonderful stuff. It's amazing. And he speaks about the Father's love in really stirring ways. We need to understand that Jesus didn't go to the cross to make God love us, though he was unwilling. It's that God willed to love us. And so he sent Jesus to the cross in order that he might justly do so. Owen says something like this, how, how few people really get are experimentally acquainted, is his phrase, with the Father's love. 
how many Christians think of Jesus very warmly, but they have kind of a fear or an apprehension of the Father, as if the Father is always glaring at them and upset with them. Christian, understand that just as you don't get the Father without the Son, you don't get the Son without the Father. It's God who has acted in Christ for our salvation. And so this Trinitarian stuff, this stuff about simplicity, on the ground, what all of this should do is help us understand God is unlike any other. There's no other analogy. There's no inseparability within God. There's no division within God as if there's competition about what should be done, what's the right course of action, so on and so forth. God, as a simple being, and yet God in triunity has worked for our salvation. God the Father, as we read in Ephesians 1, planned it, chose us, predestined us, has lavished upon us every spiritual blessing. Christ Jesus came to fulfill the demands of the law for us in order that we might justly receive all the blessings that God wanted to give us. Without the work of Christ, it would be injustice to bless us and not curse us. And so Jesus came and fulfilled all the demands of the law. He took upon himself the mediatorial work that would be essential for our salvation. The work of one who would represent God to man and represent man to God. The Son of God took that upon himself. And the Spirit came and opened our eyes to behold the plan of God, the purpose of God realized in Christ that one would die for the many, bearing in himself the penalty that the many deserve, offering up to God in himself the righteousness that the many ought to have offered. The Holy Spirit opened up our eyes to grasp that, to lay hold of it by faith. The Holy Spirit wooed our hearts, won our hearts to love the God who did that, to embrace that message. And then the Holy Spirit has become the guarantee of our inheritance as the Father sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Simplicity. Trinity. These doctrines should fill out our understanding of God. Should fill out our understanding of the gospel so that it's not reductionistic superficial so that it's richer more soul stirring more awe inspiring so that we might worship more heartily so that we might find our minds not bored by the gospel but intrigued by the gospel that our minds might be immersed in these things These are what these rich, deep, difficult doctrines ought to do on the ground level. These last two points, whatever you missed in the first three points about Trinity and simplicity, these last two points bear emphasis here at the end. Jesus' work involves not only healing, but resurrection and judgment. And therefore, 
Jesus' work is central to salvation. If you want God, you've got to deal with Jesus. If you want resurrection, you've got to deal with Jesus. If you want to stand in the judgment, you've got to deal with Jesus. At a simple level, at least grasp that and deal with Jesus. But may we all understand from this text more than we did at the beginning of this day. Something of the richness of who God is. Something of the richness of the gospel. Something more of the simplicity of God. Something more of the triunity of God. And may we all endeavor more and more to embrace and to grow in a triune conception of God and the gospel. May we respond with faith, repentance, and ever-deepening worship toward that God and toward His gospel.